Lord, we just come before you and we ask that you guide and lead us as we look at your word and help us to see what you would have us see. We thank you for those that are here. We thank you for the rain that we need to, to water everything. And we just thank you for your love and your kindness. And we ask your leading in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was just baptized in chapter 3. And it starts out... Then was Jesus led up by the, of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward hungry. And when the tempter came, he said to him, If you be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the, into the holy city and set him upon a pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. Then Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said unto them, All these things will I give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus answered in him, Get you hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. All right, we're going to take a look at the, the temptation of Jesus. And it starts out, he was baptized, and then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This is something we keep bringing this up. God tests us to see whether we believe what we believe is really real. And here Jesus is going to be tested. And his testing is going to be a little different than ours. Because <laughs> he's going to be putting himself in a weakened condition even before he starts his testing. And a lot of people will have this idea that uh, there's two schools of can uh, in, the, in there. The, number one, that Jesus could not sin because he was God, or that he could sin because he was human. I'm in the school that believes that he could sin because if you can't sin, then there's really no temptation. And, all right, so I do not believe those who said that he could not have, he could not have sinned. And that, that meant if he could not have sinned and he went through this, then he really wasn't tempted at least the way I look at it. Now, they'll look at he was tempted just like everybody else, but if you could not sin, and we brought this up. If you have zero desire to drink, you can be sitting in front of alcohol all day long and not be tempted to take that drink. Now, if you're somebody who's an ex-alcoholic or somebody who loves the taste of alcohol, that alcohol becomes a huge temptation because it sits there and you say, well, I like that, especially if they've got your favorite... <laughs> favorite alcohol out and put it in front of you. Okay, so my opinion is that Jesus could have sinned. Is it likely that he would have sinned? Absolutely not. He was God. He had a little extra, extra strength, plus he had no sin nature to desire these sins. But these are some strong temptations that are going to be put before him. And so we want to look at these temptations. It starts out that first he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then just as an afterthought, uh, Matthew goes, and he was afterwards hungry. <laughs> well, you know, that's like a, a duh. But in the same token, Matthew is trying to tell us that he was human. 
Okay, it wasn't that he went out and fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he got fed, you know, supernatural food somehow and came out of this time without being hungry. Matthew was making it very clear he was human and hungry. And this is, this is an important point because, again, some people want to believe that, you know, Jesus always was satisfied. And even when he talks to the woman at the well, he goes, you know, and the disciples came and go, are you hungry? We've got food for you. And he goes, no, I've got food that, that you know not of. And he was able to say, no, God's taking care of me. And God could have taken care of him during this period of time too. But Matthew's being very clear, he was hungry. He was human. Just as any of us, if we had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, would be hungry. And 40 days and 40 nights of fasting is about as long as you can fast with your body without getting into death. You can go a couple days either direction, but 40 days is right there at that, at that point of a hunger. If they go on a hunger strike, that's about as long as they can go without having to be forced to eat or, or die. And so we're seeing this, that he's, he's pushed his limits. He's, he's weakened his body as weak as his body can be made. And the first temptation that the devil comes in verse 3 says, And when the tempter came, he said, If you be the Son of God, and I love this starting, this starting phrase, he knew who he was talking to. <laughs> this is not an if, and, I, and you may or may not be, but, but since, kind of saying, since you're the Son of God, <laughs> command these stones to be made into bread. Now the first question is, could he have done that? Absolutely, he could have done that. It would not have been a problem for him to command the, the, the stones to be turned into bread. It probably wouldn't even have been a sin if he had just decided he was hungry enough to, to make the bread, you know, the stones into bread. But because Satan was the one pushing for it, it was going to push it into a sin. It was going to be presuming against God. And Jesus' answer, and we're going to note, and I'm going to be listing these, but all three times that Jesus answers are quotes out of Deuteronomy. All right? God, Jesus used Deuteronomy, the retelling of the law, to answer him. And he answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that is Deuteronomy 8.3. And we'll just quickly look at Deuteronomy 8.3. Because it says pretty much the same thing. Deuteronomy 8.3 And he humbled you and suffered you to hunger and feed among the manna which you knew not. Neither did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of his mouth does man live. So when, Jesus, when God had said it in his first case it is you're used to your manna. You're used to eating manna because that's what I'm giving you but... Life is so much more than just physical food. And those of us in this room are, are understanding that. Spiritual food is very important. Every word of God is important to us. And we want to grow, not just physically. And God knows that physical is important. That's why he gave them manna. That's why he gave them quail. That's why he said, I'm taking you to the promised land that flows with milk and honey. More food than you'd ever, ever want. But he says, but even more important than the physical food is the spiritual food. And we need to really be able to grab hold of that 
thought process that God's word is, is as important as the food that we eat. And I don't know if you're, you're like me, but I know that when I don't read the word of God, I feel spiritually hungry. I feel somewhat depressed. I feel like I've missed something in my life. And this is what Jesus is saying here to the devil. You know, you're wanting me to worry about physical. I'm worrying about the spiritual and being with God and touching with God and talking with God. And this is why it's important that we feed our spirit and grow spiritually. And the only way we can grow spiritually is by being in the word. And the word does not return void. The word builds us up. It changes who, you know, changes who we are. And I know that various people in the, in the room know what that means. The word changes us. It changes us and we, we're not the same person we were, you know, even last year or last month, you know, but we definitely aren't the same person we were two, three, four, five years ago because God's word changes who we are to think like, so we start thinking like he does, we start acting like he does, and his word is more important than food. Now, we have trouble with that because our bodies are very quick to demand food. Some of our bodies more, 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 more demanding than others, uh, including myself. I, I like to eat, and I don't make any bones about it. I like to eat. And God's saying we need to desire the word of God just as much as we desire food. We should be listening to our spirit. When it starts screaming about being hungry, we need to feed it and not put our spirit on a fast. If we're going to put either the body or the spirit on the fast, it should be the body and not the spirit. Because God wants us to grow. And this is what Jesus tells the devil. You know, you're wanting me to, you're wanting me to make these stones bread more important that I live on my Father's word. And this is, we, we think back when Moses went up on the mountain and said he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights and he didn't eat or drink. But yet he was in God's presence and was sustained by God in that period of time in a way that we can't even understand. I kind of believe that he literally was in God's presence and kind of stepped out of our dimension for a while into God's, God's presence because he was, came back with his face shining. And so we know that when people are with God, they can do wondrous things because God's presence keeps them. And his, because he's the creator. He knows how to keep the body. And then after this temptation, it says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto, them, unto him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and their hands shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. So he's been taken from where he was at, which is just outside of Jerusalem and Judea, where John the Baptist was baptizing. And the spirit, in somehow in the, Satan took him up onto the top pinnacle of the, of, the, uh, of, of the temple and says, hey, just jump. <laughs> just jump because, and here, I just want to look at this. The devil quoted scripture. Now, he didn't quote it in context, and we'll, look at, we'll go back to where it came from in just a moment to show the whole context of the verse. But we just want to bring out first things first. The devil knows the Bible. 
Okay, he knows every word. He knows that it's true. He doesn't like the word of God. He probably despises the word of God, but he knows that the word of God is true. And he is very good at taking scriptures out of context to say things that they don't say. And cults do this all the time. They take verses out of context. Or, in some cases, they write their own version of the Bible and change the context of what they say. And we want to be very careful because even with some pastors at times, they will take verses out of context and say, here's what this verse means. Always go back and look at verses in context because it's important to know what, what the context is. One pastor I've heard say, go back at least 20 verses in front of that verse and 20 verses after that verse. And that's a pretty good way to get context. Uh, at least a paragraph, if your Bible marks things off in paragraphs, at least read the paragraph. But we need to read the scriptures in context. Because one of the great things about the Bible, God is the author of the Bible, the ultimate author of the Bible. It has unity throughout the entirety of scripture. And I'm going to give you a very quick overview on what the context of the Bible is for the whole Bible. Salvation. <laughs> Almost every verse, every chapter, every book, the entire book is about salvation. Now it weaves and, and meanders around in other things, but everything is ultimately salvation. And as people are learning, as we go through the Old Testament books, Jesus is all through the Old Testament. Pictures of Jesus is all through the Old Testament. Pictures of salvation are all through the Old Testament. It's all about salvation and how much God wants to redeem his people. Now, the, the verse that Satan quoted out of context is Psalm 91. And we're going to start it at... Jesus' answers were all from Deuteronomy. Not Satan's quote. Satan's quote is going to come from, from Psalm. And we're going to start at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord, which is your refuge, even the most high your habitation, there shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come nigh your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. You, they shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shall you trample under feet, because he has set his love upon you. Therefore will I deliver him, and I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will... I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him with honor. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. In the context of that verse says that if you're honoring God, you're hiding in him, you're seeking refuge in him, then God will deliver and uphold. So Satan says, forget this stuff about dwelling in him and him being your refuge. But it just says, he's going he's to hold you up. He's going to protect you. And this is something very important. This promise wasn't just to Jesus. That promise in, in, in Psalms was for all people who have made their refuge in God. He protects us. He lifts us up. When we fall, he lifts us up. When, when we are in a dangerous place, he protects us when we're in his will. And here, 
Satan has given him just part of the context of that verse. Oh, throw yourself off. It's, it, God's promised to keep you. We need to be careful. Oftentimes we have doctrines even in churches that are built on one verse, one isolated verse in the scripture. Very important when we start studying scripture is if God says something two and three times, we know it's true. If he says it multiple times, then we need to really pay attention to it. We can build a doctrine on two, three, four times of quoting. Never make a strong stance if you can only find one verse that supports what you want to what you want to believe. It may or may not be true, but it would, it's not the place to try to say, well, this verse says, <laughs> and, and that's the only verse that supports what you're thinking. You're on pretty thin ice on saying that that's a, a place to walk because you may be reading something that was just uh, something that was done. All right? And we see this in many places where the Bible will talk about people doing something and it's just quoting what they were doing. It's not saying whether it was good or bad, just that it happened. And there's some place, people that will take that type of statement and say, well, see, it says it right here in the Bible. Well, yeah, all it does there is say that they did it. It doesn't say that it was good. It doesn't say it was bad. So be careful. Be careful when you're reading the Bible to not jump into and try to find what you think something, you know, just because you like what the words say and you're going to build the doctrine to live off of. Make sure it's something very strong and ready that is something that you can live on because otherwise you could be going down the wrong path pretty easily. And we don't want that. We want to live in the solid footing that God gives us. And because we have the word of God, we can live on very solid footing. We are a new creation when we're saved. And there's, there's the uh, Corinthians 5.17 that says that, but there's other places that talk about us being a new life, being reborn. John 3, where it talks about that new birth when we accept Christ. We are brand new. This gives us a different way of thinking. Then we get into the word and he changes our actual mind. In Jeremiah, he says he's going to give us a new heart of flesh, not of stone. And then he gives us in Isaiah, we're to learn and build, our, build doctrine, line upon line, precept upon precept. And slowly we start becoming more like God because he changes who we are because the word gets into us and he's dwelling in us and he pours out of us and we are the new creation he says we are in some areas. And we work on getting the other areas as new creation. But it's so important he will protect us when we hide in him, when we take refuge in him. When he is our fortress and our strong tower, he protects us from all possibility of being hurt. And when we are put in a place like Jesus was, he'll allow the temptation and then he'll minister to us and revive us. Just as he did with Jesus at the end of this time, he was revived by the angels himself. Jesus' answered back to him was from Deuteronomy 6.16. And Jesus said, It is written again, you shall, love the Lord, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So Deuteronomy 6.16. Should have marked these. It says in context, and You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. And if you remember Massa, that is when they cried out about not having water and he had to strike the stone to bring water down to them. So 
the Jews had the habit of tempting God, and Jesus says to the devil, we don't tempt God. I'm not going to jump off this tower just to, just to see if God will answer it or not. This is a place where we as Christians need to be very careful that we don't do things presumptuously. I've had some people say, well, I gave all my money away that was supposed to pay my bills. Well, giving your money away is a very good thing. But giving all of it away is probably not the best thing to do unless God very clearly tells you to. Uh, don't be stingy, don't be greedy with your money, but we need to be careful that we don't be foolish with it. I've seen people who said, I'm going to be healed of this disease, and they throw away their medicine. Very dangerous thing to be doing, because if you're not healed, you've got some problems in your life. Do not presume that God is going to do something. Now, having said that, we've got to be careful, because we also have to have steps of faith. And sometimes those steps of faith don't make a lot of sense. I've shared with you, when I moved to Kingman, it made no, no financial sense to me whatsoever to come to Kingman because I was a computer programmer at the time. And we all know that Kingman is the, the uh, programming capital of the world, right? <laughs> you know, it made no sense to come here. <laughs> Matter of fact, there are very few programming jobs here in Kingman. I mean, there are a handful at some of the bigger companies, but not, nothing major. And I told God, I'd go, God, I'd rather move to one of two places where the language that I program is very popular. I could get lots of jobs. I could be, I could be making lots of money. And God says, no, you're, you're to go to Kingman. And I argued with him for a while and finally decided I was coming to Kingman. It was one of the times I did obey God rather than do something dumb and have to, have to come to Kingman after doing something dumb. But sometimes we step out in faith just because God is saying to do it. But we want to be careful that we don't just make a presumptuous thing. I, I, know, I know a man who said he was going to be healed from his, from his bad vision and destroyed his glasses. Didn't just put them in a drawer, destroyed them. And then a couple weeks later had to go buy glasses again. Okay, We want to be careful that we don't presume against God. And now I understand his point of view. I mean, he was so absolutely sure that he was going to be healed. He was taking a step of faith to say, I'm going to be healed. And because I'm so sure of it, I'm going to you know, get rid of the crutch and not have to go back to it. In this case, it's just one of those things we need to be careful of. We need to be careful. And again, I want to be careful as I say this because sometimes we need to take out a step of faith that seems to be a really bizarre thought or a really bizarre idea. And it's a walk of faith. The just shall live by faith. And that's a quote from Habakkuk and it's quoted three times in the scripture. So God is trying to let us know that we as justified, righteous children of God are to live by faith. I've said many times, I would love to be able to just hear God speaking to me all the time. You know, it would be great if he just had sitting on my you know, shoulder and say, do this, do that, do this, do that. The problem with that is it would not be living by faith. It would just be following orders. And God says very clearly, the just shall live by faith. And so sometimes we're going to have to step out in faith. But we want to make sure we're listening to God and we want to be very sure that it is God speaking to us. How do we know God's voice? We get to know his voice by being in his word, spending time praying, worshiping, listening to other teachers. We get to learn his voice. And when you spend that time with him, 
and I and I've shared this many times. You know, we kind of shortcut it nowadays with our caller ID on our phones. We know who's we kind of think we know who's calling because of the phone number being called from. But you remember the, remember the old days when all your phone did was ring and you had to pick it up. But you knew the voice. You know, if somebody called you enough and you go hello and they start talking, you go oh hi, <laughs> and you knew exactly who it was. How did you know? You spent time talking to them. You knew their voice. How do we get to know God's voice? We spend time with him. We get into the word. We start finding out what he says and how he says it. We spend time listening to teachers. We spend time in prayer and just listening for his voice. The, the prophet in the Old Testament, God said, you know, wanted to hear his voice and he came in a thunder and thunderous storm and God's voice was not there. The whirlwind was not there. The earthquake and it was not there. And then the still small voice of God. Why does he speak in a still small voice? He wants us to quiet ourselves down and concentrate on him. Because if you've ever tried to hear a whisper in a crowd, what do you have to do to hear that whisper? Number one, you've got to quiet yourself down. And you really have to concentrate on the sound that you're trying to hear. And that is what God wants us to do, is slow down, concentrate on him. Because normally we get so busy, we're running around and, and all of a sudden we're going, okay, God, I think we're going to go do this. God, uh, where are you? <laughs> yeah. God, I really thought I was supposed to go do this, but we never slowed down long enough to hear his word and his voice. All we did is we presumed on him, we ran off in a direction, and then we wondered where God went. And it wasn't God going anywhere, it was us running off from him. And I think about this when, when I, my kids were little. You go to the grocery store, and if you weren't holding their hand, or, or any other store for that, I mean, you're not holding their hand, the next thing you know, they're, they're an aisle or two away, and you wonder where they went, and they're wondering where you went. Because they, you weren't paying attention to them, and, and they weren't paying attention to you. And this is what we do to God so often. We let go of his hand. We run off into some, some valley or, or over two aisles and we wonder where God went. And we want to be very careful of that. We don't tempt God. We don't presume against him. But we do listen for his voice. Be, be, be ready to listen. And sometimes it's a hard voice to hear. Especially when you're all full full of... Uh, problems and issues in your life and you're and you're trying to follow him and trying to find him and you're not ready to follow him the way he says oftentimes we need to stop start reading the word spend time in prayer and concentrate on him and I've shared with you many times this is what I did when the restaurant business when when the pressure would start getting up I'd find a reason to go out and take the trash out so I could just sing a quick song or say a prayer refocus on God because the chaos was starting to overwhelm me. And it's like, okay, God, I need the focus. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there several times in my lifetime, many times in my lifetime, where I've just had to say, God, I'm going to stop. I'm going to focus on you. And when you start focusing on God, he starts giving the answer. And we pray and we seek God. And we need to be quick to seek God. You know, the, the old phrase, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray, is not where you should be living. It should be, I've got a problem, I need to pray. And it needs to be the first thing we do. When we start realizing there's a problem, we need to pray and ask God for help and wisdom. Now, he may still ask us to do something and, and give us the answer to do it, or he might do it supernaturally, 
But once we start bringing him into the process, all of a sudden the way becomes a lot clearer on how we need to, need to go. And this is why it's important to bring him in at the beginning. His wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding, his insight. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Okay? When we're not sitting there trying to figure out how I'm going to fix this problem and how smart I am in fixing this problem, and I just turn to God and let him lead, it's amazing what, what way out you see. How many times have you been in the middle of a problem that looks like there's no way out of the problem? And you just take a moment and, and, and talk to God, and the next thing you know, you see the, a nice, easy way out of the problem or through the problem. Sometimes it's through the problem, not out of. Sometimes we have to go through, just like Jesus is having to go through this temptation period. But we talk to God and he guides, he leads. We open our mouth and speak and all of a sudden words are coming out of our mouths that we don't even know where they're coming from because he's filling our mouth. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened when I've been witnessing to somebody or even preaching or teaching. There's times when I'm preaching and teaching when I kind of, me is behind the scene listening to what's being said and it's my voice, my, and everything, and speaking and I'm going, this is not me, this is the Spirit speaking. It's happened several times. Not as often as I would like it to happen, but several times. But God will give us the answer. He will give us the guidance. He will give us the leading if we just quiet ourselves and let our flesh be crucified and let him come out. And this is what Jesus is telling them. You're not going to tempt the Lord. Now, if I was for some reason climbing up on this pinnacle and fell off, God would, God would cover me, but I don't know why you would be climbing the pinnacle in the first place. But, but that was the mentality. If I make a misstep and I go the wrong way, he's going to guide, he's going to protect me as long as I'm normally dwelling in him and seeking his way. But if I'm just going out trying to, God, I'm going to do this, I want you to bless me, and so many times that's what we do as Christians. God, I think this is a really good idea. I'm going to go do this. And then we wonder where God is because it's not what he wanted. And we're acting in a presumptuous way because we didn't present it before God. We didn't ask for his guidance. We didn't ask for his direction. And sometimes churches even get into this type of thing. They start doing something and they keep doing it just because that's what they've always done. And that's a dangerous place to be because it may have been good in a season and may have outgrown that, that season. And we want to be careful that we're not doing something just because that's what's always done. There's a lot of programs going on in churches that are still going on that were dead a long time ago. But they have somebody that is like me that just won't, won't let things go and keeps, keeps it alive, kind of. Keep, keep it on life support. <laughs> The heart's beating because I've got the machine keeping the heart beating. The lungs are moving because I've got the, I've got the lung machine keeping the lungs open, going up and down. But, but the program is dead. And we need to be careful that we're not doing things just because. And that we're listening to God and saying, okay, this is dead. Get rid of it. God, this is what you want done. And we want to keep going. And there's certain things that have happened over the years where the programs are dead. They were a great program for a while. God has moved on past that. And sometimes things will keep going and it's not necessarily a good thing to have happen. And so don't tempt God. Then it says in verse 8, Again the devil took him up into an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof. 
and said unto them, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Okay, Satan takes him up to a high mountain, and this is going to be a supernatural display that's going on. Shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Okay? Everything that's out there, all the good about all these kingdoms. And he says, I'll give these to you if you will just fall down and worship me. So the first thing when people read that, they go, well, how, how does Satan have that authority? Well, he got that authority. This is a legitimate offer that he's being, making to Jesus. He is the God of this world. Well, was the God of this world until Jesus defeated him at the cross. How did he get that power? Adam and Eve sinned because they were to be, have dominion over this world. and They were to be, quote unquote, the gods of this world, little, little g. They were to be in charge of this world, not as supernatural gods, but they were to rule this world. They sinned and Satan was given the title deed to this world and it was brought into corruption. So when he takes Jesus and said, I will give you all of this if you just bow down, this actually is probably a legitimate temptation to Jesus because what he's really saying to Jesus, you're going to get all this stuff by going to the cross and dying. I will give it to you if you just worship me. You don't have to die to get everything because that was what's going to happen. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for our sins and he's going to take back possession of this world. So Satan's temptation, this is a bigger temptation than you think when you first read it. This is... We can shortcut gut your father's plan for you. And if you just bow down, I will give you everything that you're going to get the hard way. How many times do we do that with God in our walk? God says, I want you to do this. And we decide, well, God, I think I'm just going to shortcut it. I don't like your way. I'm going to try to buy my way into that position. Or I'm going to do, you know, I just want the title and authority without the humbling and the, and the training and all of that. I just want... You know, Oftentimes, we shortchange ourselves and try to take shortcuts with God. Instead of being walking through some of the valleys that he puts out there, we'll go, oh, God, I don't think I want to go through that dark valley. I'm going to go around it. And God says, no, the plan isn't to go around it. It's to go through it. Because what you're going to learn by going through it will prepare you for what I've got for you in the future. I've heard people say that if they could go back, they'd love to change things in their life. I've come to the conclusion, I don't ever, I would not want to change anything that's been done in my life because everything that I have gone through has made me who I am. Made me the person that, that teaches the way I teach and ministers to people the way I minister to them because of the what God took me through. And a lot of times we look back and we say, well, if I could just get rid of this hard place in my life, no, that hard place is what made you stronger to be able to endure the other problems that you go through. We need to be very careful. We need to look at what God has done through our hardships, through the trials that we've done. I've heard a lot of people who got saved later in life that said, man, I just wish I could go back and get saved earlier. Well, it might have been really good to do that. And there, but you would be a totally different person today than you are because of what you have gone through. I am, I am very happy over the years of my walking with God from a very early life and not having gone into a lot of the problems. But because I haven't gone through some of the problems other people do, I've had people look at me, well, you just don't understand what I'm going through. Well, I understand sin is sin. Okay, it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or drugs or 
or homosexuality or adultery or all these other problems out there, sin is sin. You fall into sin for all the same reasons as anybody, as everybody else, and the sins that I've had to deal with are the same. May not have as great a consequences or destruction, but they're still sins. And how do you get victory over sin? You name it as sin, you repent, <laughs> and you turn away from it. Now, some sins are probably harder to get, get out of. When you've got your body addicted to some substance, it's probably harder to. But by the same token, if you commit a sin long enough, it has an addictive quality no matter what it is. There's a psychological addiction that gets to it. Maybe not a physical, but a psychological addiction. And the psychological addiction can be just as bad or worse than a physical addiction. Because physical, you, can, you know what's going to happen. You know, what, you know the problem. Psychological can be a lot harder. The same thing we talk about, you know, we teach our kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words hurt worse than the physical pain of the sticks and stones. And the words will last for a lot longer because they're hidden and they're, and they're nestled in the soul and, and eat at the soul. We want to be very careful that we're not trying to shortchange our, weak, our, our hard times. The hard times are what God had planned for our life. And if we wasn't planned, we wouldn't have gone through them. So we want to be very careful and say, well, that just was a bad part of my life. I wish I could erase it. Well, maybe you don't. There's some strength that you're being, if you erased it, there's some strength that would be taken out of your life or at least some place of empathy with other people if you stripped it out of your life. And this is one of the things we've been talking about. We talked about last night, grace. We need to learn to give grace to people and sometimes we learn to give grace by going, having gone through some things ourselves, and it makes it a little easier to give grace or, or goes to the other extreme and makes us vindictive against it. Uh, I've seen a lot of people who are ex-smokers or ex-drinkers, and they just get really harsh on people who are still in that area. That's not where we want to be because the, everybody knows that if you give somebody a hard time about their drinking or alcohol, they really want to just give it up. No, they want to do it more. And, they, and if not more, they want to hide it from everybody and, be, and become uh, the secret closet <laughs> one. And we want to be very careful. We want to learn to give grace to people because grace is what will lift them out of their depravity. And that condemnation won't. Jesus answered to him from Deuteronomy 10.20, Get you hence, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, Deuteronomy 20. That doesn't look right. 1020. Looking at the wrong verse. Deuteronomy 10.20, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him, and to him shall you cleave and swear by his name. So not, and he kind of just left some of that out, but I love that. You shall cleave to him. God desires us to cleave, and that word is the same one that in, in Genesis it talks about being joined together as one. We are to be so close to God that we are to be glued together, soldered together, with him. That's a pretty powerful thought that I am so close that we become one. He's going to dwell inside of us anyway. We are one. He's going to change who we are. But it says serve God 
worship God and him only. This is something that we need to be very careful. How do we worship God? Not just by coming to church. That's not the only way to worship God. We worship God by getting into the word on our own. We, get, we can worship God. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. So if you want to have time with God, go find a couple of Christians and hang out and talk about him. You know, this is very important. I really want to see us get encouraged to do this. Get together as groups outside of church time and just say, you know, it could be so, something as simple, you know what I read this morning? You know, let me tell you about what God showed me this morning. I'm hoping that when you're reading through the Bible, you're, you're not just going into the Bible to say, okay, I've got to get my three, I gotta get my three chapters in today. You know, if that's the only reason you're reading the Bible, stop because it's not doing you a bit of good. Well, it's good doing some good, it's his word, but yeah. You want to read and we need to be asking God, God, what is it that you would like me to see from this reading today? I can tell you it's amazing to me to read a scheduled, pre-programmed, scheduled Bible reading. And I read it early in the morning and I need just the verses that I've been reading throughout the day. It almost never fails. It's almost always true that whatever I read that morning is just what I needed to hear to get through that day. It's an amazing, amazing thing that God does because his word is quick and alive and, and living. And we read his word and, it's, and he just says, and it's amazing because I follow, I follow my own plan that I, get, that I have. I've been following it for years. I've got the one that you guys read and I also read most of those each, each week. But it never fails that whatever I'm going through is what I read about that morning. And you know what? On the occasion when I forget to read my Bible in the morning and I finally read it in the evening, I'm going, boy, I should have read it this morning. I needed all these verses to get through what I went through. Or it would have made getting through a lot easier. But we lift him up. We worship him. We worship him in the word. We worship him by coming before him. We worship him with each other. And like I say, this great thing, when we get together, you might say, this is what, I, this is what God showed me this morning. What did he show you? Challenge one another. Challenge one another. What is God showing you in your life? Very important to talk about him. Lift him up. Encourage people. Find other Christians. I, I told you when I was in the restaurant, I used to drive people crazy because I'd come in and I'd go, you know what God did for me yesterday or last night? And I'd talk to them just as if they were Christians. Most of them were not Christians. <laughs> You know, and they would give me that look like, oh, here he goes again. He's going to talk about how God is personal in his life. But, you know, that had, a, had to make some impact on him. Because I'd get the strange looks, you know, the, the kind of the eye roll, here we go again. But, you know, it still was a witness to them that God was real in my life. Is God real in your life? Is he somebody that is doing things that you want to share with others? Because we all share things that excite us. If you go out to dinner and you have a really good experience at dinner, which is hard here in Kingman, you go and you tell people, you know, hey, this is what I did. You know, I got this. This was a really good deal and the food was good and the service was good. If you find a good deal on something at the store that you needed, you're going to say, hey, you know, look at this. This is what I bought at the store and it only cost. Do we do the same thing with God? Are we telling people, are we getting excited about God and sharing what God is doing in our life? What is he teaching us in our life? And it's really good if you do it to lost people because they think you're crazy. 
But, but that's good. Might drive them away, I don't know, but you know, it's good that if you can do it to the lost because you're going to say, God is important in my life. He is working in my life. People are looking for something that works. And we've talked about this over and over. The lost world is looking for something. They are looking for God. They just don't know it. And they will try to fill God, that God hole in their life, which cannot be filled with anything but God because he's infinite. And it takes an infinite God to fill the infinite hole that he's got in there for, in our life for him. And we try to plug it up with everything but God so often. Even us Christians try to do that to a degree if we're not really focusing on him and worshiping him. But the world is definitely trying to fill that empty space with whatever. My, my earlier days was workaholism. I wor you know, worked all the time trying to find satisfaction in work. I knew better. I knew that God was my satisfaction because I, he'd already satisfied but I got wrapped up in that world and what the world said. You've got to get out there. You've got to earn the money for your family. You've got to, got to get to the top. It doesn't work. It doesn't fulfill. It doesn't help. Some people have tried to do it with possessions. And if you really want to find the ultimate search for person searching, you read Ecclesiastes where, where Solomon gives his example of having tried literally just about everything there was to try. Uh, he was a workaholic. He, he planned all these different work projects and, and supervised them. He, he got into possessing things and he got into alcohol. He got into wives and concubines to way too many. But, uh, you know, all kinds of things that he did trying to fill that hole that he knew better because he'd already had God in his heart, you know, giving him all wisdom, all knowledge. And he walked away from God and tried to fill it up with something other than God. And Ecclesiastes is a great book. If you don't believe that it, the, uh, don't believe that it can't be filled, go read that book. Kind of a depressing book as far as I'm concerned, because it is. It's a struggle of a man trying to fill his life, the whole that God should be filling, with worldly things. Is that necessarily a good witnessing tool to remind somebody that, remind them that they're looking for something? I think it is to a degree. I mean, it, uh, I'd get it more, I'd, I always did it more indirectly. You know, this is what God's done for me. Kind of saying, well, he's filling every, every one of my needs without saying he's filling every one of my needs. Because especially if it's something that they're kind of struggling with, all of a sudden it's like, well, I wonder if this God could give me that same thing. When we talk about good witnessing tool, we want to be careful because, again, we don't want to get into a program. This is how we witness to people. Because every single person is different. Some people are very intellectual and you need to, you need to be able to answer their questions. Not that you can argue them into the kingdom, but you have to answer their questions. They're analytical. They're, they're, they need the answers. I'm that type of person. I need the answers. Some people are emotional and just need to know that their, their, need, their emotional needs are going to be met. Uh, so we talk about this, and this is why we need to, we prepare ourselves, but we let the Spirit lead how we're going to talk to them. And I've shared with you, I love the Romans Road, but I don't use the Romans Road all the time when I'm witnessing. Uh, I don't use the same technique all the time. Sometimes it's just simple, you know, you know God loves you. And it's amazing when you say that, and they'll, go, they'll tell you all about how God can't love them because they're so bad. 
But that's a great answer back. You know, do you really think you're that bad? Let me tell you about somebody in the Bible that was really bad and give them a Bible story. <laughs> Talk about David. Most of the people you t that are telling you they're not that bad, you tell, start talking about David, an adulterer and a murderer. Most of them aren't both of those. They might be one or the other, but they're not usually both. They can be. But you say God still loved him and brought him back. Okay? But we kind of play off what they, they give us. You know, one of the things I like to say to some people is, what do you think is going to happen to you after you die? And then there's two ways. They either go, well, I hope I get to heaven, which gives me a whole line of reasoning about nobody, you know, we're all sinners, we all go to hell, you know, we're all doomed to hell because God is a good judge. Oh, I'm going to just die and there won't be, any, there won't be any, anything after that. Well, that's a good place to use. Well, what if you're wrong? What if there is an afterlife? and then work on, on that side of it. But again, everything is going to be personalized to everybody, but you, you do fill your mind with different ideas and how, how to answer some questions, and you study and look at how to do these things. And we're going to do probably an evangelism class here because I want, you know, I want people to feel a little more comfortable, but by the same token, I want people to understand that we're just giving you starting places. We're not giving you a roadmap on how you can witness to everybody for every situation is going to be different. And this is why a couple of weeks ago I put the, you know, a couple of different ways to witness to people in the bulletin so that you can look at these and say, oh, okay, I like this one, I can use this one. Or, and you might just find yourself using different ones that it, you know, or different pieces of it. And when people say, well, I hope I get to heaven, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven, and that's, a, you know, there's a, a evangelism uh, class that teaches, well, you teach them that God is a good judge. And he's going, to give, he's going to judge not by what you do right, but what you did wrong. And you give them an example, you know, you know, let's say somebody killed your mother and they caught the, you know, caught the cr uh, criminal and he stands before the judge and he says, you know, judge, I'm a really good person. I just made this one mistake. And you go, if the judge says, okay, I'm going to let you go, is that a good judge or a bad judge? And everybody's going to say, well, that's a bad judge, especially if it's somebody you cared for. And then your point is that God is a good judge. He's not going to judge people for what, you know, let them go for what they did right. He's going to judge them for what they did wrong. So we've got different ways. There's different programs. We just need to learn enough of them in our mind and let the Holy Spirit bring them back. And this is one of the reasons I go and say some of the different things. So maybe in the middle of speaking one day, God will bring it back to you and, and you know, the right words will come out because you've heard them a couple of times and it's stuck in your brain somewhere. And the Spirit can draw it out of you. But again, it's listening to God's word, listening to his speak. And sometimes when you're witnessing to people, a silent, quick prayer, God, help me help fill my mouth with the words I need for this person to plant seeds. And we need to remember we're just planting seeds. We're not accountable for whether they accept Jesus or not at that time. Because that's not our job anyway. That's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them. Our job is to tell them, you're, you're lost, you're a sinner, you deserve punishment, and Jesus died for you. You need to accept him. And invite them. Ask them if, they would like to know, if they'd like to accept Jesus. Most of them are going to say no. But you know what? Once in a while, somebody says yes. But you know they're never going to say yes if you don't ask them. And this is something most Christians fear to do, to ask them if they want to ask Jesus to, to be their Savior. 
We need to do that step. It'd be like the salesman coming to your door to sell you something you desperately need and want. Not just something you know, that they're trying to talk to you, but he walks up to your door and you really want what this salesman's saying. And he gives you his spiel. He, gets, he goes through this. You're wanting to buy it and then turns around and walks away without asking you if you want to buy it. Now, no salesman's going to do that if they're worth their salt. But we as Christians do that so often. We get somebody totally hungry for Jesus, ready to accept Jesus. We've given them all the gospel. They've seen our life and the, the changes in our life. And then we just walk away from them, leaving them wanting Jesus but not knowing how to do it. We need to ask, you know, I've shared this with you. Would you like to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? What's the worst they can do? Say no. <laughs> it's not your problem if they say no. Because it's the Holy Spirit's not, there, not on their heart at that moment. But if they say yes, you get to pray with them. Then you get the fun job of discipling them. And that's the hard part. Getting them to encourage them to go to church. Getting them to encouraging them to read their Bible. Answering their questions. And there will be lots of questions from a new Christian. I love new Christians. They are fun to talk to because they've got lots of Bible questions. They've got lots of things in their life that they're trying to work out. They're fun to, fun to work with. They're fun to be around. They're excited. They're, they're excited about God. And they've got lots of questions because everything is new to them. Everything is new to them. And we just need to be ready to listen and minister and be ready to just answer these questions for them and be ready to invite them and do it gently. You know, you can't coerce somebody into accepting Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I shared with you the time I went soul winning and this poor, poor teenager was backed up against the wall with this person giving the gospel and telling him, that he, telling him he had to be saved, he had to get saved, he had to get saved. After about 10 minutes of being with his back against the wall, being harassed, he said a sinner's prayer. He didn't mean a word of it. All he wanted to do was say this get this crazy woman away from him. The sad thing about it is he might have walked away from that, that encounter thinking he was saved because he said a prayer that he didn't mean. And I turned to her, I'm going, he's not saved. God will, God will, go, God will get him, God will get him. He said that prayer, God will. I go, no, he said prayer to get you out of, out, of his, out of his face and he may now believe he's saved and end up going to hell because of what you've just done. And you know, we want to be careful. We're not sitting there trying to coerce. We just ask if they want to. Great. If they don't, okay. Have a good day. Have fun. But your words will haunt them for a while. Your words will haunt them the next time they meet another Christian who gives them the gospel. And eventually that seed might just come to fruit. And Paul said, he, he, he watered, Paul, uh, Paulus planted, and Peter harvested, or it might be the other different names, but he said each one of us had a part in somebody's ministry. We don't know what part we're playing. We don't know if we're planting the seeds, if we're watering the seeds, or if we get the real blessing of harvesting the seed. But God still knows everybody who's had a part in that person's life. And sometimes you have a part in that person's life being saved just because they saw you as a Christian and you lived as a Christian, and that impressed them. That's just as much of watering the seed. But we need to use words. <laughs> lifestyle evangelism was preached in the 80s and 90s. It's like, just live a lifestyle that people will be drawn to Christ and they'll, and they'll come and ask you. Well, you know how many people I've seen come and ask me about Jesus? Yeah, maybe three or four over the years, but you know, most of the people I've talked to about Jesus has me being saying something. 
Okay, lifestyle evangelism is great, but don't let it be your only way to evangelize. Use words, because words are what builds faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Spoken, out loud, heard. <laughs> okay, and then it says, after Jesus answered him this uh, third time, it says, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. After he had answered the three questions, and there were probably more than the three. I think they're highlighting the biggest ones. After he was victorious, Satan left, and the angels ministered. In our lifetime, when we go through these dark places, it'll seem like we're alone. And in one sense, we are alone, because when we're being tested... It is what do we know. Just like when you go to school, when, back when you were in school and you took a test, the teacher was not there giving you the answers as you took the test. It was, what do you know? How much do you know? You're showing your knowledge. When God tests us, we're walking through a period, of, a place where he is not there speaking loudly into our ear. It is, I'm testing what you know. Are you ready? We get to the other side of it, and then he ministers and comforts us. Now, we can get out of this real quick and easy with uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. So all temptations are common. There's nothing new. You're not the only one going through anything. Satan loves to tell us that. You're the only one who's been tempted this badly. Everybody's gone through it. It's all common to man. We are not going to be tempted above that which we are able to withstand, but with the temptation there will be a way of escape. The way of escape? Turn to God. Turn to Jesus. When we get to that point where we're about ready to fall, we go, Jesus, I need your help. God, I need your help. And he comes and helps us through. And we want to be able to do that because God is not looking for supermen and superwomen that can go through it, all temptation all by themselves. That's not what he's looking for. And if you think you're that type of person, he's going to set you up to fall because you will fall. He doesn't want that flesh to stand in his presence. He wants us to be humble enough to call on his name and hide in him. Humility is rewarded by God. Servanthood is rewarded by God. And Jesus said that he served the disciples. He expected the disciples to serve the other Christians. He expects us to serve one another. He is not looking for leaders who demand to be served. That's the world's way of doing things. I'm the, I'm the CEO. All of you are supposed to bow down and give me whatever I ask for. And what do CEOs in most businesses ask for? Your entire life, body, and soul. You know, give, me, give me all your labor, all your time. I'll reward you, but you're going to give me everything. I'm going to be God in your life. The business is going to be God in your life. And if you don't make it that way, it's hard to move forward in a company because they look at you and say, well, you're just not dedicated enough. We're going to take these other people. Yeah, we're going to put these other people who are willing to give us everything. And this is what will happen to us if we're not careful. God says we're to serve one another. We're to do the most menial things that don't get recognized because it just needs to be done and let God be the one that rewards us in glory. And we want to be looking at that. In, in this church, leadership is, is fulfilled through 
servanthood. And when, they are, when, they, when you're serving people, you will be lifted up, but God will lift us up. But we need to, even then, stay humble and serve. Even as we're being lifted up, we need to be very careful and walk with him in all that we do and all that we say. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you help us as we go through the dark valleys and the dark places to know that you are testing us to see if we will lean on you and that we will come through those and be ministered to and rewarded in the end. Help us as we go out for the next couple days and as we share you with others and, and lift you up. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.